This is a crowd podcast. You're in a situation where it doesn't matter who you are, who you know, how much money you have, how determined you are, you, you're absolutely powerless. This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. Since we started making this podcast, I've had lots of messages from the Human Shields. It matters to me that they feel I'm doing their story justice, and I'm glad to say their reaction has been very positive. I've also been contacted by other people involved in the story, new sources that have added crucial new details. More about that in later episodes as the investigation rolls on. I'd like to introduce you now to Jennifer, who's come forward to tell us her story, one of the most remarkable and disturbing in the whole saga. Jennifer Chappell was just 12 years old when she boarded Flight 149. It's fair to say that boarding the flight that day changed her life. She was travelling with her parents, John and Maureen, and her 14-year-old brother, John. She was looking forward to celebrating her 13th birthday during her summer holidays. A seasoned traveller, even at that young age, she settled into the flight. I slept and, and read, and the flight itself out to me at least seemed to be a, a relatively normal flight. I could see and sense that there was a little more agitation or sort of nervousness among adults. Um, I was aware that I'd heard things. I think it was just more at that age I didn't attribute it the level of risk associated that obviously the adults would have been worrying about on that flight. When the plane landed to refuel in Kuwait, it was usual for a team of cleaners to spruce things up a bit before continuing on the next leg of the journey. Jennifer and her family stayed on board. They'd come on and they, they'd seemed edgy and nervous, but I was also looking out the window and I saw what I, in the first split second, thought was a horrific um, plane crash just starting as I saw two military jets come very close together and then I could see things falling from them. Within the next split second I realised that it wasn't a, a crash and they dropped bombs and why were Kuwait planes dropping bombs on the airport? And then obviously the plane shook and it was pandemonium. Like the other passengers, Jennifer and her family were rushed into the terminal building. You could smell it in the air particular smell that you only get with explosives and things so you could smell it in the air you could see the jets um, we were told to stay away from all the windows obviously I remember my father telling my brother and I that if anything hit the airport we were to get straight under the bank of metal chairs and we were to stay there until it was over You were taken on a bus to an airport hotel when did you first see an Iraqi my first clearest memory of seeing actual Iraqis was when we came down for breakfast at the airport hotel the following morning and we all had to wait outside the dining room because there were Iraqi military, obviously some high-ranking officers by the deference given to them, but they were sat around tables moving salt cellars and things like that around a map, obviously you know, planning manoeuvres, and we had to wait for them to vacate before we could go in to have anything to eat. I think that's my first clearest memory of seeing them up close. We'd seen them out the windows in the car park where they'd, they'd run over the people in the cars and my brother saw civilians being shot, but that was the first up close that we saw actual uniforms. 
So uh, John had seen, your brother had seen somebody get killed in front of him. Yeah, he pushed me down out from the window so that I couldn't, didn't see it, but John saw it. So at this stage, what was your state of mind? I mean, what were you thinking? It's a bit hard to explain. It was kind of on the one hand sort of almost kind of disconnected from it, almost like it was we were in our own action film on the one hand. Um, but on the other hand, it, it does seep through to that real fear of we may not get out of this. None of us. Just like the other hostages, after several weeks spent stuck in a hotel, the chapels were taken by soldiers and driven out into the desert. We drove around for hours and hours, and at one point we drove into a corner of somewhere within fencing, and there was like a corrugated iron tin shack, and in the distance I could see like large pipes. I think I've since been told it was a refinery. We stopped there for quite some time, and there were the soldiers seemed uh, nervous themselves and just seemed to be sort of hanging around and milling around. But you thought, and most people on the bus thought, you were, you were going to die that night. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like the, the old World War II films that we'd grown up on, where either we'd all be shoved in the shack and the shack would be hosed down with gunfire and that'd be that, or we'd all be, you know, killed in groups and the bodies would just be chucked in there, stacked up. But either way, we thought, certainly, I think many of us thought the same way I did, that that tin shack was going to be our final resting place. Mercifully, their worst fears didn't come true. Instead, they were driven further and further through the desert until they eventually arrived at a deserted army camp. They were ordered to pick a bungalow at random. The bungalow we happened to pick had been ransacked and they'd opened tins and packets of things and just chucked them on the floor in the sink because they didn't like them. And amongst them was this packet of cornflakes, which overnight my mum and dad sat there and individually blew all the dust off each individual cornflake and put them back in the packet so that my brother and I would have them for the following morning. I think they said something like, oh, we found another pack in the back of the cupboard. Well, of course, my brother and I knew they wouldn't have done. But um, I think even as children, you sort of learn to play the rules. Life as a human shield was difficult for so many reasons. Jennifer's parents were trying their best to keep their young daughter safe, but it must have felt like there was danger everywhere. When a soldier offered to help Jennifer fly a kite, they felt they had to intervene. Ultimately, I was somebody got nervous and I was taken in to have a conversation with by my parents where I was explained to me that in places like Kuwait and Iraq, they can marry at 13. And that last little bit of sort of innocence of childhood versus adulthood slipped away as I was sort of made aware of that sort of side of things, kind of front and centre. And, you know, it did scare me because then I worried, well, you know, what if one of them takes a shine to me? It's not like my mum and dad are going to be able to stop them taking me. Then came the announcement that Saddam was releasing women and children. Initially, it seemed that families could leave together. But then came the devastating news that the men would have to stay behind. I didn't want to leave my dad. We didn't know if, if that was it, that we would ever see him again. Tried not to think about it, but... We did consider that that would be the last time that we saw him. As I've grown older, it's it's almost sort of got a little bit worse in a way because now, with having my own children as well, I can understand far more intimately what not just my mum but any of the other women there would have been going through, being stuck between choosing this moment to trust and try and get you and the children out versus not wanting to leave your partner behind. 
it was heart wrenching because we didn't have we we didn't know if they were going to let us out or whether we would just be taken somewhere else and then we're a group of women and children being held captive on our own somewhere else. To be honest, I don't think any of us ever believed that he was going to let us go until we were actually on the plane and we were outside of Iraqi airspace. A few days after returning home, Jennifer was back in boarding school, amongst children from military families. But the other children were cruel to her, bizarrely holding her responsible for the military action building in the Gulf. They sort of were coming from the point of view that it was our fault, not just me and my family, but all of us on that plane, it was our fault that their fathers were over there because we shouldn't have been there. And now their fathers were having to fight to try and save ours, which I tried to point out, well, you know, we didn't want to be there. We shouldn't have been right, we shouldn't have been there. Yeah, I got quite a lot of bullying that it was, it was my fault that their fathers were in danger. It's hard to imagine how awful this must have been for Jennifer. To have survived being held hostage, to then return home and be bullied for it. I was very depressed at school. I ended up in a room on my own. Within a year and a half, I was, I was out of boarding school. My parents decided it wasn't working for me, so I came back to the permanent home in Stafford. Later in the series, we'll hear more about just how life-changing this experience really was for her. So at this point in our story, Jennifer has made it home, along with her mother and brother. As we heard in the last episode, Margaret, Helen, Deborah and Gregor are also home. But Barry, Clive and George are all still human shields, with no idea if or when they'll be released. One aspect we haven't explored yet is how the families of the human shields were affected. They faced a different kind of torment, left to fear the worst, desperately trying to get information on where their loved ones were being held, watching the news and seeing the build-up to war, wondering if they'd ever see them again. We were very frightened. We had very little information, very little idea of how to obtain information. This is Rowan Halkyard. Her parents, Daphne and Henry, had been nervous when they heard their flight was passing through Kuwait. Henry's background as a soldier made him anxious to avoid the region. After making the fateful decision to travel on their British rather than their New Zealand passports, they'd been taken as hostages and were now being held in a rat-infested tin shed near a nuclear plant just outside of Baghdad. Back home in New Zealand, Rowan hung on to scraps of news. There was a New Zealand representative based in Baghdad, I think, and she did her very best um, to keep us updated. We knew quite quickly that they had been taken from Kuwait uh, to Baghdad and that they were being held at the Mansour Media Hotel in Baghdad. And as soon as we had that information, we made attempts to contact them and were variously told that the hotel was closed or there were no guests under that name registered at the hotel. So we had no success in in reaching them there. And did you get told when they were moved from Baghdad to another location? I'm trying to recall the order of events, but at some point in time we were aware, yes, that they were no longer at the hotel and that they were being used as human shields. the, the, The term human shields started to be used. And so we, you know, we knew that the intention was to use these people as a, 
as a deterrent against Allied attack. And you must have started thinking at that point that you might not be seeing them again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were we were determined, um, but you're in a situation where it doesn't matter who you are, who you know, how much money you have, um, how determined you are, you, you're absolutely powerless. So, you know, we were certainly aware that um, the odds were stacked against them. It was a long way through that three-month period, I think, that I came to that realisation and um, I think acceptance is a bit of a stretch, but I, I did, you know, fully understand that the likelihood was that they wouldn't be coming home. Did you see or were you made aware of the moment where your um, parents appeared on the uh, Guest News TV programme? Uh, I didn't have any forward warning of that. Um, I was in a flat in Dunedin and um, watched the news as we all did every night because that was really our sole source of information. And yeah, they appeared in a a hostage lineup, and obviously um, it was good to see them, but I was very, very distressed by it. Uh, they had, I believe, been uh, given the opportunity to present a little bit more positively on film, and the reward for that would be that they were able to send a message to family in New Zealand, but they were pretty averse to that and they felt that their family back home would understand and we did um, so they were very stony faced um, and it was a pretty grim scene you know they were proud dignified uh, people you know they had had strong reservations about getting on that aircraft in the first instance because they were aware of some of the things that were going on in the in the gulf um, and so yeah they weren't going to be part of a charade now, obviously, later on, you uh, must have heard at some stage that uh, Saddam had said women and children could go. Did you expect at that stage, you know, that your mother would be going and you would see her shortly? No. I remember the news item and uh, my first response was, I think, oh no, because I couldn't bear the thought of them being separated. But then when I thought of it more, I, I really um, had little expectation that she would leave my father. And um, when I heard that she was staying with him, I felt that that was the right thing for her to do and that they needed each other at that time. So as time went on, and obviously the forces are gathering and people are getting ready for war, did it ever occur to you that they might end up being killed, as it were, by, by our side, by our troops? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there was, it was not a good situation, whichever way you went. So we, we were very aware of that possibility. After the break, we'll hear how Clive's family cope with his captivity. This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. The next family we'll turn to are the Earthies, by now, you'll be familiar with Clive, the stoic, calm and experienced cabin services director. We all knew we were being taken as hostages. We all knew that. And we ended up at uh, Shoe Wake Port. Clive's wife Jackie, daughter Joanne and son Stephen were used to him being away with work. But this was different. Here they recall the moment they first discovered what had happened. The first voice you'll hear is Jackie. 
Clive rang me from the hotel to say uh, that Kuwait had been invaded. Whew, God. Right. Um, and there were soldiers everywhere and, and there was certainly a large explosion. And I said, what was that? And he said they were bombing the runway or something so no other planes could take off. That, that was it, really. You probably didn't want to end that conversation with him, did you? Not knowing... Uh, no. ..what was going on? No. Um, the managers were ringing three, four, five times a day. So much that I had to say at one point, you know, I don't need this kind of support. It was it was wearing. You were just saying the same thing, you know, don't know anything. At the time, we thought they were doing all they could for us. I remember I was watching the news a lot um, and then speaking to mum and what she was telling me didn't match up with the news and it was just so confusing. I mean, it was everywhere, you know, everywhere you looked. It was just surreal, wasn't it? And, you know, thinking, my dad's in there somewhere, but not knowing where he was. It was quite hard getting on with my job. I was working in a hotel. And then, you know, after my shift and that, and then speaking to mum and, yeah, it was all just sort of revolved around it, really, wasn't it? Joanne was 21 at the time, and Stephen just 17. He'd recently started an apprenticeship that had been going very well. That job came to an abrupt end because, I quote, your mind isn't on the job, so that was me out the door. They were fully aware of what was going on, fully aware. So You think afterwards, you can't do that, can you? You can't no. sack someone because their mind's not on the job and their dad's out in golf. I don't think we were aware of our rights in those days no. or even if... I don't think we even talked about it. No. And then we heard nothing for probably months. Um, we got a message from a, a Danish consulate, a message we got through that he was all right. So I think we relaxed then. Jackie kept a diary to keep track of any information she received. She brought it along to show us. So she actually still has a copy of this message. August the 9th, 1990. Message from Clive via Son Alsen, Danish Ministry of Affairs. Clive is safe and well and sends his love. It was quite a jubilant moment. You know, I, I remember sort of going, you know, jumping up and down when I got that message. Mm. Um, well, you would do. Because mm. <laughs> you know he's still there. Mm. British Airways was staying in regular contact with Jackie. But she says they didn't connect them with the families of the other hostages. That is one thing BA would not allow us to have contact with other um, families. That were well, in the same situation. I don't know. No. I didn't know that. No, they wouldn't. There's no reason why not, because you can share information. They might know something about Dad and we might know something about them. Mm, we didn't. We <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Um, mm. There were various meetings set up by British Airways to give us... I don't know, they, they went through the how you might be feeling, but that was all like cloak and dagger. You were picked up by a company car. You weren't to tell anybody where you were going and certainly not allowed to tell anybody anything. And that was all coming from the company. When they heard that women and children were being freed, they initially hoped that this meant Clive would be coming home soon. And I, I guess that elation that you felt went on for quite a long time before the reality hit that, no, it was going to happen. 
But the stewardesses did bring some good news. Here's Clive. We were very lucky that Jackie, my wife, managed to uh, receive a couple of letters from the stewardesses and they had been good enough to um, phone Jackie at home also and assure her that we were actually all okay. You know, we were living in a filthy, dirty bungalow, but we were okay. Of course, Clive was downplaying the conditions he was being kept in to try and save his family from worry. There was a young lady who was kept in the city who made contact with another group of hostages about uh, 200 yards away from us. We weren't allowed, of course, to see them at that stage. But this young lady had actually managed to contact, I think it was the Austrian embassy somehow. And Jackie had a phone call after six weeks or something in that area from an embassy person in Austria saying uh, a message from your husband. He is still fine, he's okay, and is looking forward to coming home sometime. <laughs> As you can probably tell from Clive's knowing laugh there, it would still be quite some time until he made it home. And what about the young lady he referred to? Well, since starting this podcast, we believe we've made contact with her. So you should be hearing more about her daring undercover actions later in the series. The number called has been changed to telephone number. Clive's other daughter, Suzanne, decided to take matters into her own hands. She made phone call after phone call until she got through to someone who could help her. I don't know who she went through. She just kept at it that night. And eventually she got through to either the Ministry of Defence or Home Office. And she insisted she was not going to put that phone down until she was patched through to her dad. (laughs) And she was on the phone for, what, about eight hours? And she would not put that phone down. I was had a banging on my door in the hotel to say, there's somebody on the phone in the corridor, Clive, who wants to talk to you. They sound very, very excited. It sounds like a young lady, and it was my daughter, Suzanne. I'm afraid I burst into tears, and my daughter was uh, also in tears. (laughs) But we had a little conversation there, really, uh, just for a few minutes before the operator in the hotel had been ordered to uh, cut it off because until Suzanne put the phone down and disconnected that particular line, nobody else could get in. And so they eventually let her just say, hello, daddy, blah, blah, blah. And uh, then as soon as she put the phone down, they were happy. So yes, that's my daughter, Suzanne. The bill, I'm told, was many, many hundreds of pounds. During the later stages of Clive's captivity, things were looking much darker. We'll hear more about this in the next episode. And so any communication that did make it home was starting to sound bleaker. And I remember the letters being... um at the same time, it's great that, you know, you knew Dad was alive, mm. but some of the things he was writing in them wasn't, 
it wasn't nice. It was very it, upsetting. No. I mean... It was, it was more frightening. Yeah, because he thought he was going to die. So, you know, what he was writing was the fact that, you know, he didn't expect to come back. So that that was, you know, it was like, great, he's, he's alive, but, <laughs> you know, he might not be. I totally shut down and just... Uh, yeah. It was October time, you decided that Dad wasn't going to come home mm. and that was the only way you were going to deal with it. And that was then when it started getting really hard because then obviously on the news all the time it was just showing bombs. Because I was younger at the time, 17, 18, I think I've become very distrusting of people. Mm. Yes. Yes, definitely. You are. Yeah. Mm. Especially with relationships. I can't, you know... Yeah, there's no complete trust, is there? No. No. But it does seem that being able to tell their side of the story has brought some comfort. Here's Jackie. I feel calmer. I feel relieved that we have actually been noticed. Mm, me too. After 31 years that, mm. you know, it did affect us and we do have stories. Yeah. Um, two, two different sides of, a, of yeah. one story, isn't it? In the next episode, we'll be back with Clive, Barry and George. Plans for a rescue mission were underway. British SAS commanders had some information about the hostages' locations, but there were just so many to be rescued. Intelligence officers pored over news footage, analysing it frame by frame for clues. The plan was for a joint British and American mission, the SAS and the American Delta Force. But all the hostages heard was more tough talk from Thatcher and Bush, threatening Saddam Hussein with war crimes. In other circumstances, some of them might have supported this stand against blackmail and tyranny. But now, to most of them, it felt like a death sentence. Next time on The Secret History of Flight 149. The Iraqis were digging massive great holes and putting in guns. I think they were probably anti-aircraft guns. I was taken one night blindfolded in the back of a little pickup truck and was taken to a place that was purported to be a chemical plant. You live in the moment. If you see food, you eat it. And if you see something that might be useful, if you have to run and hide, you grabbed it. The secret history of Flight 149 is a crowd network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound design is by Phil Brown. This series is based on my book, Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. To get episodes without adverts, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. Other ad-free podcasts on the Crowd Stories channel include American Vigilante, about a controversial renegade crime fighter, KC, and Murder in House 2, the inside story of one of the biggest cover-ups in US military history. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. <laughs>